Welcome back to our fun little show. This is the Tennis Podcast. Did you forget the name of the show for a second? Yeah. But I didn't forget my name, which is Nick. I am the host of the Tennis Podcast. I'm joined now by my sidekick host, Brandon. My equal host, Brandon. I'm feeling good today. It's Friday as we record this, so I'll let you... Um, Have equality? I'll let, you, I'll let you live out your fantasy for a little bit. Yeah, this is part of my rock and roll fantasy. This is the show where every week, Brandon or myself comes with a top 10 list. The other tries to guess without any research beforehand. But this week, we're going to mix it up a bit for our special once in a lifetime. One time only. This is the only time we'll have a 35th episode, Brandon. So, we got to make it special. Uh-huh. On this episode, we're going to be talking about our favorite books. Ooh. <laughs> Yeehaw. Giddy up, cowboy. Favorite books. And not just our favorite books, but I have a lot of listener submissions on their favorite books and some really interesting choices here that we'll read later. If you hate books or you are illiterate, this is going to be a bad a bad time for you. To all of our preschool listeners out there, there are, you might come back. There are adults who struggle with illiteracy. No, no, I'm not I'm not discounting that. I'm just I'm speaking specifically now to our preschool age thumb twaddlers out there. <laughs> you might come back in 10 or 15 years. I'm sure it will come pre-installed on your iPhone 20. <laughs> like a U2 album? Actually, you know what? iPhone 20 in 10 years, we're going to be on like iPhone 48 or something. You'll have an iPhone in your brain. <laughs> That's right. Or up your ass. I know which one of those I'd prefer. We are going to try to guess. Brandon and I know each other well enough now that I could probably guess his favorite or a few of them. He could probably guess a few of mine. But we'll also talk about our books in depth here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, before we do that, why don't you tell us what you're currently reading right now, if anything? I kind of feel guilty. I have slacked off in my reading. But you jacked off in your what? <laughs> I've slacked off in my reading lately. Oh. But I'm opening up my Kindle right now to see what... Uh, the last thing I was reading, I was 17% of the way through the book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Science confronts the unexplained at a remote Nevada ranch, mm. which I was turned on to because of the recent uh, last podcast episodes on Skinwalker Ranch. I probably wasted my time because they covered it so well that the book is a whole lot of like, oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. I have those episodes of the last podcast on the left on my phone ready to listen to. Well, you don't need, you don't need the book now. Uh, and Got before it. that, I, well, I reread, I actually pulled this book over here. It almost made my top five. Uh, before that, I was rereading Zodiac by Robert Graysmith, the shocking true story of the nation's most bizarre mass murderer. I disagree that Zodiac is the most bizarre, but that's neither here nor there. I, I don't think he is the most bizarre either. Uh, but this paperback is 355 pages and does come with like illustrations, copies of uh, the letters that the Zodiac sent to newspapers and law enforcement. It also has maps. I think there's some black and white photos in it, but uh, it's really cool if you're interested in the Zodiac. It's a really fun book. It's a part of what the film Zodiac was based on. Yeah, great film too. And, you know, part of our goal in this episode is to... Uh, titillate. Titillate. Let's sample the books that we enjoy, the type of reading we do, and hopefully encourage you to read some of these if you haven't already. Uh, what are you reading right now? I'm rereading for the first time The Tommyknockers by Stephen King. I'm almost done with it. Just a heads up to everyone listening to this episode, which I know is about 98% of the world's population. 
It's going to be a lot of Stephen King for me today. I can't help it. I love Stephen King. He is my favorite author. I've read almost every book he's done. You're swinging from Stephen King's nuts. I'm swinging from Stephen King's nuts with a big old smile on my face. But I made my... Because I could easily... This list... The list I brought today, honestly, would just be five Stephen King books. But I made myself choose some non-King. So, don't worry. I have some non-King in here too. But it's going to be very Stephen King heavy for me. And for everyone who has not read Stephen King and thinks he's just a scary, you know, cliche horror writer, I'm going to squash that notion throughout this episode because he does a lot of stuff outside of horror. In fact, I'd argue most of his stuff is outside traditional horror. Anyway, all that to say, I've been on a rereading kick lately. You know, until last year, I never reread the same book more than once in my life. But I, I did it first with It as I was getting ready for the new movie. And then I reread uh, another one and now I'm rereading The Tommyknockers. And I got to tell you, if you haven't read The Tommyknockers yet, that's a hell of a trip, my friend. When you reread a book for the second time, had you forgotten a lot of the stuff that happened? And Yes. Did you feel like nervous about like, I can't remember what happens next? Yeah, it's funny because it's not this way with movies, I feel like. A movie will hang with you for a lot longer as far as the specifics. But I feel like a book, I guess because you're reading it, you're taking it in differently, obviously. For me, whenever I think of a book I love, it's usually the idea of a book, the overall themes of the book. It's much less the specific scenes. Yes. I think I know what you're talking about because I think I'm the same way. You enjoy the tone that it sets and that sort of, I wouldn't say it like becomes part of you for a while, but you take it in in a much deeper, maybe even more subconscious way. Even really good, really good TV shows that are literary in their approach uh, also sort of put that forth. Mad Men and Sopranos are both like that to me. If I watch a lot of them, I notice it's something about the tone or the themes sort of seep into my, the back of my head too. And yeah, Stephen King's, some of Stephen King's books are very, very good at establishing that tone and then pulling you in and, and sticking with you. Yeah. And I think, you know, a difference too is when you watch a movie or TV show, which I also love to do, but those are things happening to you. Whereas you're reading, it's something that it's part of you for that time that you're reading it. And I'm a slow reader myself. So, when I'm reading a book, usually it's with me, you know, for several weeks depending on the length. Yeah. So, Brandon, what's your, what's your take on the book as a concept? <laughs> on the book? On the... On, the idea uh, of the written word. Everybody get ready. I'm about to say something completely original on the topic of a book. When do you think the first novel was ever written in on paper or stoned. <laughs> uh, I mean, are you referring to a novel as something that we would currently identify as novel length, around 200 pages or more? I guess, yeah. I don't know. It had to be before the Iliad. I think there were probably longer well, was it, things. Wasn't the Iliad, sorry, but wasn't the Iliad uh, a spoken tale that was transcribed later? Uh, it might have been. An epic poem? Yeah. I, yeah, I believe it was something that people would basically perform the story in front of a crowd. And then eventually someone took it down on paper. I could, I could be off on that. You know, you're right. It was, was all uh, based on an oral tradition. Yeah, <laughs> oral tradition. Uh, I know, an oral tradition. <laughs> so far in this episode, you've mentioned jacking off, oral, and turned on. And titillated. And titillate, yeah. That's how you grow an audience is by talking sexy. Like when you say we're going to do books, people feel unsexy. So, you got to, you got to make books a little bit nasty. <laughs> a little bit nasty. Well, nothing nastier than our asses covering books. 
But I asked our Twitter followers at TennisPod on Twitter. You can follow us there. You should follow us there. If you haven't followed us there, unsubscribe from our show. Whoa, don't do that. Okay, but I asked our Twitter followers, on a weekend alone at home, would you rather read a book or watch a movie or series? Mm-hmm. What do you think our followers voted on? Book. Is it a book? No. Fucking illiterate. It's funny because the reason we're even doing this episode, I forgot to mention at the top, is weeks ago I asked, what opinion-based list would you like Brandon and I to do? And it was books, movies, music, stuff like that. Books won. And then when I asked this question later, these assholes tell me they'd rather watch a fucking boob tube than read a book on the weekend. Well, it is faster than a book. 64% of our followers say they'd rather watch a movie or series on the weekend than read a book. To me, it depends on the movie, the series, and the book. Sure, I guess so. So, yeah, let's get into this. I have a list of honorable mentions and I have a list of my top five. Okay. I'm just going to shout out a few of my honorable mentions here. We don't have to talk in depth about them. Okay. These are books I considered for my top five but ultimately decided against. The Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Great series of books. It's more fantasy uh, than horror for sure. There's elements of horror but it's ultimately just a fantasy epic Stephen King himself has said it's uh, he was inspired to write it based on the Lord of the Rings. Loader. By what? Loader. That's what us Lord of the Rings fans call it for short. Loader. They do? I don't know. They I don't just do that. <laughs> I just see it a brief... I don't know. I'm not a big Lord of the Rings fan. Oh, I get it. L-O-T-R. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying the word loader, like you're loading some crates into a fucking truck. Well, you're dead wrong. J.R.R. Tolkien. Haven't read his stuff, but I'll tell you, a hell of an ass. Uh, so, that's the Dark Tower series. I highly recommend it. Other honorable mentions for me. I'll just get the Stephen King out of the way now. The Stand by Stephen King. Uh, the Shining by Stephen King. So, it's now so for some non-King. How about Stephen King's kid? <laughs> Joe Hill wrote a book. That's Stephen King's son. He wrote a book named Horns, which is also a movie starring Daniel Radcliffe. Now, I'll step completely away from King. <laughs> I thought it'd be great if you said, I'm going to step completely away from Stephen King and then you named Richard Bachman. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, for those who don't know, is Stephen King's uh, very well-known pen name. He wrote a few books under that name. Right. Anyway, the best Bachman book, The Long Walk, I have to say. You know, some of these books on my list I have not read in 10, 15 years, whatever. So, I'm basing like my favoritism toward them on how I felt when I first read them. You know what I mean? Right. Because right. if I were to reread them today, I might rank them differently, but you can't do that. So, I'm ranking them all on how I felt when I first read them. I feel you. I did the same thing. Have you heard of the book Tedum Brown by Mick Foley? <laughs> no, no. I But I have read um, my brother, uh, my younger brother was really into wrestling. He had an autobiography, Mick Foley's autobiography. He used to leave it by the toilet. And <laughs> so, over the course of a couple weeks poops, I've read Mick Foley's autobiography. Because what would you do on the toilet except read? Well, there was, yeah, I didn't have a phone. Well, anyway, Mick Foley, yes, the pro wrestler Mick Foley, he also wrote some novels. I don't even remember how I came across these but I read, I read all of his novels and they're really good and Tedum Brown uh, I read in high school, I think. Tedum Brown is basically just a coming of age story. It's a book about a, a young man named Antietam or Tedum for short and uh, he had a hard life foster homes. He was raped as a, as a teenager. His father abused him, uh, some KKK stuff. So, it's just a story about this, <laughs> this guy's really hard upbringing. 
I don't think there really is a plot outside of that. It doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Yeah. So, yeah, Tatum Brown, worth checking out. Mick Foley also had a novel called Scooter. <laughs> it's about his love for scooters. I wouldn't be surprised. He's a renaissance man. <laughs> I like Mick Foley. I know very little about him, but man, he seems like a really interesting, cool guy. Yeah, no, he is. From, you know, I, I was just talking to him this morning. Uh, <laughs> He's listener to the show. A trend you're going to see with all my picks is I don't read a lot of fiction. Nonfiction? Or wait. Oh, fiction. No, wait. I don't read a lot of nonfiction. Right. I have one quote unquote nonfiction book on my list. But for the most part, I stick in the fiction world. I actually do not have any nonfiction books. Although I read a lot of nonfiction and it's, I think the two things I just cited, well, I don't know if fucking Skinwalker Ranch can be uh, really called nonfiction. But anyway, I read a lot of nonfiction, but my favorite books are all uh, fiction. Yeah. Wait, fiction is... Fiction is fake. I always get it mixed up. God damn it. Okay. Few more here, and then I'll shut up. Deception Point by Dan Brown. The fucking yeah, uh, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code. Okay, it's not in that universe. It's not about Jesus's foreskin. No, God, you're all about sexual innuendos today. Are you amped up on something? No, I have to keep it. I have to keep it nasty. So you got <laughs> people would be turning this shit off every time we're like, oh yeah, this literary technique. They're like, oh God, if they don't start talking about whacking off, I'm turning this off. <laughs> then I slip in and say something that remotely sounds. You slip in. Exactly. Continue. Okay. Timeline by Michael Crichton. Yeah, I read that one. The guy who wrote uh, Jurassic Park and I read in fact Jurassic Park is one of my honorable mentions I read it you know around the time the movie came out I was in fifth grade or I think it was the summer between fourth and fifth grade because I remember going into fifth grade and taking my very worn paperback of that novel with me because I thought it might impress the teacher that I had read it over the summer and it did but he probably was just like fucking nerd now your school it was a one-room school building right <laughs> with uh yeah, the teacher couldn't figure out how I got a book that had been published for 60 years. The yearbook for your high school was just... Um, it was on wood. Artist renditions of every student because there was... It was a wood burning. <laughs> Timeline's good. It's about time travel. There was a really, 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 really shitty movie adaptation starring Paul Walker. May he rest in peace. Reality Land by David Koenig. This is my a rare nonfiction choice for me. This is about the... Inception, Creation, and Legacy of Disney World. Oh, uh, it does sound good. Yeah, it's it's really cool. It's about Walt Disney's dreams for Disney World, how it came to be. It's a little dry at times, but overall, it's really interesting. My last honorable mention, The Martian by Andy Weir. Weir. What is it? Andy what? Weir? Weir. I think you borrowed that from your boy. All right. You have honorable mentions? Um, well, I mentioned uh, Zodiac. Uh, paperback. I didn't put down a whole bunch of uh, honorable mentions. Let me look at my old notes here because I did write some down. Jurassic Park was one of mine. It was a big deal for me at age, I guess I would have been 10, a big deal for me at that age to read like a full novel and read about science and scientific theories. Let's see, The Stand is on my list of honorable mentions as well. Do you have an original thought in your body? Well, my next ones are original compared Does to Does everything yours. you say have to be something derived from me or someone else? This is why you're the sidekick host. 
Well, I didn't write these books. I mean, someone else wrote them and millions of people read them before I got to them. A Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway and To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think most people were probably required to read those at some point during school. Am I the only one who... All right, I'm not going to say it. Say it. I don't want to alienate all of our listeners more than I already have. I read To Kill a Mockingbird and I just Mm -hmm. couldn't get into it. Is that because it made you feel guilty about being racist? Maybe I was too young, you know, because I didn't start reading for fun until I was like 16, I think. Yeah, it deals with themes that are mature. I don't mean mature uh, in that they're like graphic in nature, but it... Pornographic in nature? Do you, do you read anything that's not pornographic? It deals with complex issues and it... If you're a kid, I mean, if you were like 12 or 13 and, <laughs> you know into trying to become a skateboarder (laughs) and playing Tony Hawk and shit. And then somebody gave you this book about racism in the 1930s. Yeah, I can see how as a younger person, it wouldn't leave that much of an impression. Same with The Great Gatsby. But I know I'm a fucking weirdo. Well, let me try to guess one of your books, weirdo. All right. One of them's got to be It. Yeah, you know me well. The book It... It by Stephen King is my number one book. It has a special place in my heart because I just mentioned a minute ago that I didn't start reading for fun until I was 16. The first book I read that wasn't for school was It by Stephen King. You want to talk about me saying uh, dirty stuff, your favorite book, you're a sexual pervert. Yeah. No, I know. I'm, I'm perverse. That's perverse. It by Stephen King I read when I was 16, 17. It left such a huge impression on me, more of an impression than Brandon's big old butt leaves in every chair he sits in. Do you remember, guys, listeners, when Brandon tried to convince us he has a small tailbone butt or whatever you said that made your butt sore all the time? It's bony. Yeah. I don't have enough meat on there. Bony butt. My fucking ass. Of everything I know in the world, the sky is blue, humans need water to live or peanut butter. Fuck. But uh, should we take a sidebar on peanut butter real quick? No. Okay. Uh, Of everything I know in the world, I know that you have a copious, plentiful, adequate amount of meat on your ass. Whatever. So, it left a huge impression on me and I reread it for the first time right before the new it came out in 2017. And God, it's just a fucking amazing book. And it is scary. It has a lot of horror in it. But the themes that stick with me most from it are the concept of growing up and memory and how your childhood shapes who you are ultimately as an adult, subconsciously and consciously. Everything that happens to you as a child molds and shapes your future for better and for worse. And those are the themes uh, and friendship, the, the extreme power of friendship. Those are the themes of it that stick with me the most. And yeah, that's why it's my number one book. Well, it's up there for me. You talk about childhood and forming who you are and stuff. I will say like I never encountered countered any bullies like, you know, Henry Bauer or Brower. Bowers. Uh, in that book, Bowers. Like to that extent, but that those notions of being a kid and like being like everyone knows who the scary kids to avoid are and the ones you, the guys you want to stay off their radar because they are broken damaged people who just also happen to be stuck at the same school as you and they want to make everybody miserable like them. Yeah, it's weird. It, that book does a great job. Even though it's it takes place in the uh, early 1960s, all that stuff, all those same feelings about uh, being a kid and dealing with bullies and other kid issues and helplessness and stuff 
Helplessness. Yeah, that's a big part of it too. Yeah. And you know, the, the parts in that book that stick with me the most aren't even the part with it, the clown. It's how parents and- it's the, Yeah, it's everything that happens around that. Henry specifically, the parents, the adults in the town, just that the town itself is- The horror that real people and their problems, issues, anger, or even their indifference, how that can be horrific in its own way. So, so some factoids about it. Uh, it was published in 1986 by Stephen King. It has a page count, the original page count at least in the hardcover release was 1,138. So, this is not a weekend read. This is a, this one will be with you for a while. It was uh, Stephen King's 22nd book that he published. The story follows the experiences of seven children as they are traumatized by an evil entity that exploits the fears and phobias of its victims to disguise itself while hunting its prey. It primarily appears in the form of Pennywise the Dancing Clown to attract its preferred prey of young children. So, you know, it is most it's most famous as a clown, but it's actually a shape-shifting evil entity, oldest time and space itself, that uh, prefers to snack on children. Kind of like Brandon prefers to snack on nope, airport hot dogs. I do not. Yeah. So, a few more things here and then we'll move on. Stephen King himself has stated that he first conceived the story in 1978 and began writing it in 1981. Took him about four years to write the book. He also stated that he originally wanted the title character of It to be a troll-like, a troll like the one in the children's story, Three Billy Goats Gruff. Isn't it funny that <laughs> it started as a troll and it, it look where it ended up? The novel won a bunch of awards that no one's ever heard of, but it was also the best-selling book of any kind in the United States in 1986. That's kind of cool. Yeah, best-selling book of any kind. That's that's huge. I don't I don't know if Stephen King's had any other books that have had that distinction. Uh, it's been adapted into the 1992-part miniseries starring Tim Curry. It Chapter One was released in 2017, the highest-grossing horror film of all time, unadjusted for inflation. You can learn more about that in episode five of our little podcast here. And then It Chapter Two with the kids now adults will be released in September 2019. Good deal, everybody. It's on your list then? No, it is not on my list. Oh, okay. It would have been one of my honorable mentions, I guess. Let me guess one of yours now. I'm going to guess Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, you're right, is my number one favorite book. Me and Brandon know each other a little too well. Uh, I think it's all those long cold nights snuggling by the fire. <laughs> and reading. Where we, we learn most about each other. So, the full title, uh, most people I think have at least heard the title, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or are familiar with the film. The full title is Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream. Uh, it was written in 1971 by Hunter S. Thompson with illustrations by Ralph Steadman. Clocks in at 204 pages. It first appeared in Rolling Stone as a two-part series in 1971 and then was published as a book in 1972. Now, if you are not familiar with who uh, Hunter S. Thompson is, Jesus, where to start? He was a journalist, inventor, or he started a type of journalism called gonzo journalism, uh, which involves the author uh, inserting themselves into the story and also involves elements of fiction and nonfiction. I think he actually originally started that with uh, Hell's Angels, which is the first book, that uh, first novel that I think put him on the radar. But Anyway, he was a journalist. He followed politics very closely. He wrote about them. He was a, a huge contributor to Rolling Stone. He's a big reason why Rolling Stone gained in popularity throughout the 70s and was known for journalism, uh, not just within the music industry, but also political journalism. 
So, a lot of people are familiar with the movie and I think a lot of kind of people who are just into drugs uh, like the movie because it does have a focus on drugs. Like you? <laughs> yeah. But it's about a lot more than drugs, although that is an important part of Hunter Thompson's life. I guess I didn't fully explain about Hunter Thompson. He was a journalist, contributor Rolling Stone, an essayist, letter writer. He followed politics. He wrote an important novel, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972. But he also was an admitted alcoholic and drug fiend. He was... There was no one like him. I wouldn't say that he was mentally ill or insane, but a case could be easily made. He loved guns. He lived in a, uh, in a compound in Aspen, Colorado called Owl Farm that, where he kept peacocks and shot lots of guns and uh, made explosions and terrorized his neighbors, including Jack Nicholson uh, and Angelica <laughs> Houston. That I, that I did not know. <laughs> There's tons of stories about Hunter Thompson. Bill Murray filmed a movie and played Hunter Thompson in it in the early 80s and took on his persona. Johnny Depp did the same thing hanging out with him before he filmed Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So, like some of the most important cool people you know, when they met Hunter Thompson, they fell in love with him and started acting like him. Anyway, he lived in Aspen and one of his neighbors was Jack Nicholson. And his wife at the time was Angelica Houston. They had children together. And it was not like an uncommon thing for them to be woken up uh, in the middle of the night by Hunter Thompson blaring the, the sound of uh, rabbits being slaughtered. I guess rabbits make a, an insane screaming sound when they're being killed. And he played that in extremely loud speakers and blared it at their house in the middle of the night and left, I think it was an elk heart or a deer heart, uh, an elk heart or a deer heart on their porch right out front of the door. And of course, they called the sheriff immediately. And then they were like, oh, no, it's just uh, Hunter up to his, up to another prank. So, he did that just for fun? For shits and giggles. That's what he was up to that night. But how did he get the heart? Did he hunt? Oh, yes. I'm, sh I'm positive he hunts. But yeah, that's part of just Hunter. Why does he have an elk heart and why does he have this recording of rabbits being slaughtered and why did he want to go play it for them? and leave them the heart, there are no answers to these questions. That's just part. That I'll understand. It's very romantic. That's how I proposed to my wife. So, that's just part of Hunter Thompson. And if you enjoy that sort of chaos combined with amazing writing and humor and wisdom, then you'll like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and the rest of his writing. So, the novel follows Raoul Duke, uh, which is Hunter Thompson's alter ego, and his attorney, Dr. Gonzo, which is the alter ego of Thompson's uh, real-life friend and associate, Oscar Zeta Acosta, uh, an attorney and Chicano activist. In real life, they did take two road trips to Las Vegas, the first to cover a motorcycle race and the other to cover a convention of law enforcement officers who were talking about drugs. They descended upon Las Vegas to chase the American dream through a drug-induced haze, all while ruminating on the failure of the 1960s countercultural movement. Uh, the novel is uh, famous for its lurid descriptions of drug use. A uh, blend of fact and fiction that became known as gonzo journalism. Throughout the novel, the protagonists go out of their way to degrade, abuse, and destroy symbols of American consumerism and excess, while Las Vegas symbolizes the coarse ugliness of mainstream American culture. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read the kind of one of the most famous passages from it and kind of sums up uh, his writing style and how, how well this drug fiend crazy person could write. If everyone will pretend you're listening to an audiobook for a moment, I will read this. Let's do it. This is called The Wave Speech. Strange memories on this nervous night in Las Vegas. 
Five years later, six, it seems like a lifetime, or at least the main era, the kind of peak that never comes again. San Francisco in the middle 60s was a very special time and place to be a part of. Maybe it meant something. Maybe not in the long run. But no explanation, no mix of words or music or memories can touch that sense of knowing that you were there and alive in that corner of the time and the world, whatever it meant. History is hard to know because of all the hired bullshit, but even without being sure of history, it seems entirely reasonable to think that every now and then the energy of a whole generation comes to a head in a long, fine flash for reasons that nobody really understands at the time and which never explain in retrospect what actually happened. My central memory of that time seems to hang on one or five or maybe 40 nights or very early mornings when I left the Fillmore half crazy and instead of going home, aimed the big 650 lightning across the Bay Bridge at 100 miles an hour wearing L.L. Bean shorts and a Butte sheep herder's jacket, booming through the Treasure Island Tunnel at the lights of Oakland and Berkeley and Richmond, not quite sure which turnoff to take when I got to the other end, always stalling at the gate, too twisted to find neutral while I fumbled for change, but being absolutely certain that no matter which way I went, I would come to a place where people were just as high and wild as I was, no doubt at all about that. There was madness in any direction at any hour, if not across the bay, then up the Golden Gate, or down 101 to Los Altos or La Honda, you could strike sparks anywhere. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right and that we were winning. And that, I think, was the handle. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting, on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark, that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. End scene. That was my audiobook voice. Yeah, that's great. Hang on, you said that was a back description of the latest Berenstein Bears book, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you were going to read a quote from Henry S. Thompson though? Wasn't that funny? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that was great. Brandon also has uh, right next to his hot dog tattoo on his chest, he also has a Hunter S. Thompson quote tattoo, don't you, Brandon? I, yeah, I forgot about that uh, <laughs> until you brought it up. I have a quote from this novel, yeah, on my body. You going to read that quote or no? It was the one I just read. <laughs> it's written across my back and down my ass. <laughs> In like super small font size, yeah. size three font size. The part where it says the wave finally broke and rolled back is actually written across my two ass cheeks. Yeah. Well, and then Hunter S. Thompson, what was it before or after he wrote Fear and Loathing that he was part of the cast of Saturday Night Live? <laughs> Who are you getting him confused with? I'm joking. That's uh, your number one, right? That is my number one on this list. I, I didn't actually rank them. It is the first one I put down here. Oh, I see. I think the ranking could kind of switch on any given day, but these are definitely my top five. And for okay. list's sake, I'll just rank them in the order that I listed them on here. Got it. So, why don't you give another guess for mine? Give, it, give us a non-Stephen King guess. Dracula. <laughs> no. I've never read Dracula. Oh, it's, a, oh, it's classic. Actually, it's really good. Okay, my other guesses were all Stephen King books. Well, I do have more King on here, but for the sake of our listeners, I was going to give him a non. Give me a give me a hint. You won't guess this. I don't. I've never heard you talk about this book, so I don't know if you even know about it. Okay. So this is actually a series. I could not choose just one book. So is that cheating? Don't give a flying fuck. No, I don't care. It's a series, and this is uh, my number three. 
It's called the Silo series by Hugh Howey. Have you heard of those? You have mentioned that guy before and I checked him out on Facebook. And yeah, he seems interesting but I, I hadn't read the book. Yeah. So, the books are Wool, Shift and Dust. The three books make up the Silo series. I, uh, I had never read this guy before but I was referred to him by a friend of mine who listens to this show. Shout out to Ivan. So, this book by Hugh Howey, first one came out in 2011. It's a post-apocalyptic earth. Humanity clings to survival in the Silo, a subterranean city extending 144 stories beneath the surface. So, basically, the earth has ended. It's been an apocalyptic event. Your whole world as a reader takes place in what they call the Silo, which is basically a huge tower that is underneath the earth's surface because the, the surface of the earth and the air is deadly to humans. Can't go outside. There's now been generations of people that have grown up exclusively in this silo, this tower. Mm -hmm. um, these people have never gone outside. And what's interesting about it is there's this whole global population in this one tower and there's all these social economic issues. I mean, they have the middle class that live in the mids, they call it. The lower class live at the very bottom and there's no elevators to get to the top floor, you have to take stairs. So, what's funny is, you know, whereas now in our, in, like you and I, Brandon, we, when we think of a road trip, uh, you know, we think of a car or an airplane, these people will prepare for trips where they have to go up 140 flights of stairs. They'll pack for that, they'll prepare for that, they'll sleep over on certain levels. It's just really interesting and, and unique take on an apocalyptic world and basically, so that's like the setting. Mm -hmm. The first book's called Wool because when someone is punished, they'll basically be exiled and have to leave the, the silo, go outside into the open earth and clean the, I guess, the windows with a wool rag. So, that that's just like the premise. I can't get much more into that with, without spoilers but if that sounds interesting to you at all, check it out. It's, a, it's an excellent series. I was wrapped in it, read it all really quickly. It reminds me of a series that I read that sound, it sounds very similar and I'll just mention I really like this series. Uh, I had forgotten about it. Uh, you might want to check this out too. It's called The Wayward Pines Trilogy. Uh, it's by American author Blake Crouch. There's uh, three... I don't read books by Americans. Next. Okay. There's uh, three novels in the series. It's mystery, th thriller, science fiction. It's without, again, without getting too, giving too much away. It sounds like it's around some of the similar themes as uh, what you mentioned, only maybe there's more mystery. I think if you liked the show Lost, you would like Wayward Pines or if you liked Twin Peaks, you might like Wayward Pines or the series you just named. Okay. I actually have not heard of that. But yeah, so Wool, Shift, Dust by Hugh Howey. And the fucking author travels around the world on a boat when he's writing his novels. So, there's that for you. This is from Wikipedia. Several studies frame the story within the dystopian genre since Howey includes several of the main features of that type of literature, i.e. totalitarian rule, rebellion of the main characters, or a planned separation between the manned areas and wild natural spaces. Uh, and in 2018, AMC, the television network, announced LaToya Morgan would be adapting the series for a network series. Oh, cool. I will. Done. Okay. I'm going to, for your next guess, uh, this is a book I've heard you talk about a lot, uh, mm -hmm. The Exorcist. Uh, the Exorcist didn't make my top. What? <laughs> the Exorcist by William Peter Blatty isn't in my top but it is a really good book. It's the fucking scariest thing I ever read. Well, I was referring to Dr. Seuss's The Exorcist. Even if you don't believe in the devil, it's pretty scary. Don't say that shit out loud. He's going to haunt our show. <laughs> He'll be mad. 
So no Exorcist. How about no Stephen King? No, he made like all all of his are my honorable mentions are almost all Stephen King's and all very similar to yours, but not on this list. Have I heard you talk about one of these books before? Potentially. Just tell me one. Okay. The Dark Knight Returns. The Dark Knight Returns is not a traditional uh, book or novel, although you can purchase it in a hardback graphic novel format. Dark Knight Returns is a 1986 four-issue comic book miniseries written by Frank Miller, who also did uh, Sin City, illustrated by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen, and published by DC Comics. Clocks in around 200 pages. I happen to have my hardback copy here. The Dark Knight Returns came about at a time when the public perception and commonly Batman was thought of as that campy 1960s father figure to Robin. Uh, <laughs> didn't deal with a crime that were like serious issues. It was, it was more jokey and campy. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, there was a push to get comics back to some of their roots. And for Batman, that means a dark, violent route. So, it took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns is a story about a 55-year-old Bruce Wayne who has been retired from being Batman for 10 years. He returns to fight crime and he faces opposition from the Gotham City Police and then eventually the U.S. government and even Superman. You might remember the fight from the sort of crappy movie Justice League. I don't remember it because I went out of my way to not see it. (laughs) Well, Batman uh, gets inside a robotic exoskeleton in order to fight Superman and Dark Knight Returns is where uh, that fight was almost taken beat for beat from. Uh, It's much better in the comic version anyway. Uh, It introduces a female Robin named Carrie Kelly, some villains called the Mutants. And my favorite villain in the graphic novel is a female villain who has swastikas on her nipples. Wait, what? She's bare chested. She has on like military fatigues and she's built. She has big muscles. She has abs and big biceps and she's got like an assault rifle or a machine gun or something. But her, she's bare chested and she has big, seemingly augmented breasts. And where the nipples are, instead of you like pasties, they're uh, swastikas. Wait, are the it is? Uh, no, uh, we gotta hang on this for a minute. Are the are these supposed to be the nipples, or they're covering the nipples? They're, I believe, they're covering her nipples. Although, I mean, I guess I can't really say for sure. I'm look leafing through the hardback right now, trying to find that picture. Well, now I know why you like this book so much. Well, because there's, there's only like one image of her. One swastikas. <laughs> okay. I mean, you're a big fan of those. Uh huh. And two boobies. Well. You, you like your books with pictures. Uh, well, I mean, this is a graphic novel. It's pretty heavy on the imagery. Uh, I can't find it at the moment. It also existed. Uh, so, a couple years ago, there was a, an animated film version of The Dark Knight, which I also highly recommend. Although, you were going to- Is it to for m- adults or kids? It, 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 or is for, it is definitely for adults, although you will miss out on the narration, Batman's internal dialogue, which I think is a- Huge part of what makes this story so cool and that was a part that I wanted to read here. So, Batman, this is like his first night back on the job after 10 years. He's chasing some thugs after they rob a bank. Two uniformed policemen are hot on their trail as well. The bad guys go into an abandoned building. Batman follows them and so do the cops. Veteran cop tells the rookie cop, don't go in there, Batman's got these guys. But the rookie cop goes in anyway. So, Batman is hiding in this building. 
There's a bad guy walking around looking for Batman with a gun. He's saying, kill him. I'll kill him. And this is Batman inner, Batman's inner monologue as he hides mm-hmm. from the bad guy and also keeps in mind that there's a rookie police officer somewhere in the banded building as well. The last one's usually the one to lose it. So I let him and I let him come to me. Then I hear the rookie's footsteps coming up fast behind me. I'll have to keep him from getting killed. The rookie yells, everybody freeze, and Batman immediately hits him with a battering and takes him down. Kills him? No, he just, he just knocks him out. The rookie's safe for the five seconds it will take him to find his pistol. I play the shadows, forcing the hood to come close. He makes less noise than a truck. There are seven working defenses from this position. Three of them disarm with minimal contact. Three of them kill. The other hurts. And as he says the word hurts, he comes up from behind the corner and kicks the thug in the hip. And there's a giant illustration of the word crack on the page because he just kicked the thug in the hip and broke it. Oh, shit. And then the, there's a, the next image is of Batman leaning over the thug holding him by the collar and the rookie cop behind Batman pointing a gun at Batman along with his flashlight saying, you're under arrest, mister. You've crippled that man. And Batman says, he's young. He'll probably walk again, but he'll stay scared. Won't you punk? <laughs> and the, guy, the thug is saying, Jesus, sweet Jesus. <laughs> and uh, it might make sense to you after hearing that, that uh, it was partially inspired by Dirty Harry. There was a recently, or right before that was a yeah. uh, Dirty Harry film uh, that had come back where he returned to the police source after an absence and part of what it's my really cool graphic novel. And he was extra dirty. He was extra dirty. So, if you like boobs with uh, interesting, maybe controversial coverings on them uh, or you like a really cool dark Batman uh, story, The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. And if you read that, let me know so I can pray for you in your soul. <laughs> yeah. So, Brandon, are you a Kindle guy or, you know, an e-reading device tor- <laughs> sort of guy or do you prefer to, to hold the heavy wood and paper of man's of a man-made book yeah well that would made me you said you wanted to be nasty keep the listeners engaged it made me feel nasty um i have a kindle and i like using it it's really good for traveling and not having to carry that big wood around but if i'm reading at home i do think it's easier for me to stay engaged and interested if i'm actually holding the book in front of me I actually strongly prefer Kindle and I actually, I'm so spoiled now like it's hard for me to read a physical book anymore. But what I do is I still like to collect books. So, what I'll do is I'll buy the Kindle and the <laughs> and the physical version and the physical just sits on my shelf so I have it. Something about that creeps me out. I don't know what it is. Uh, I mean, it's legal. What you're doing is fine. Yeah. But well, something about it bothers me. Mm-hmm. Why don't you give another guess on my list? Are there any literary classics, the kind that you would have been recommended to read in high school? No. Hmm. And it's fiction. Well, it's a slippery slope. This is actually a book I know you've read too. And this is not a Stephen King book? I have other King book on this list, but the one we're guessing now is not Stephen King. Is it Ready Player One? No, I've never read that. Well, it's not like a literary... It was fun to read, but it is... Not a well-written book. 
Uh, I don't know. It's UFO shit. <laughs> the book is called UFO shit? No, no. It's, <laughs> it's about UFO shit. Oh, what, well, what's the book? It's Communion. Oh, yeah. I read by it. By Whitley Strieber. I read it so long ago that I may not have very much to contribute. I'll let you tell about it and then I will reveal how old I was when I read it. So, here's the deal. I'm not even saying, so this is number four on my list and I'm not saying it's the fourth greatest book I've ever read or the fourth greatest book ever. It's your favorite book. It just stuck with me. Yeah. Came out in 1987. It's 320 pages. It's by American horror author Whitley Strieber and that's what's so weird about this is he's a, he was a horror author. I think he had some modest success before this and then in 1987, he published this book called Communion where he claims it's based on true events. And he says that he had an alleged encounter with aliens, the greys. What kind of encounter? A close encounter of the third kind is when you... It's fourth kind. Right. A, a third, the third kind is when you see them, but the fourth kind is when you get touched by them. And the fifth kind is when you 69 with them in a tree. <laughs> Whitley Strieber says that he had experiences of lost time and terrifying flashbacks mm -hmm. and he used a method of hypnosis from Bud Hopkins, uh, the, the guy who hypnotized him and through that hypnosis, there's a word for this type of hypnosis that's escaping me right now. Regression? Yes, thank you. Regressive therapy, I think. Regre yeah, regression therapy. They put you under basically through hypnosis and that's the only way you can access memories in your subconscious mind and those could be memories that you've just forgotten or memories that were so traumatic to you that your mind has forced itself to in like a self-defense mode to not remember those things. And so, through regression therapy, you can be essentially tricked into recalling these events under hypnosis. So, he had several regression therapy sessions and they're all recorded and so, this book has a lot of transcripts from these recordings of his hypnosis. And what happened is he said he had close encounters with aliens, the greys. I think this is the book that popularized the current theory of the greys. I could be off on that. Gray aliens are, you know, your stereotypical... Uh, little guys with big eyes and big heads. Little, yeah, bug eyes and big head. He said that they came into his log cabin home in the middle of nowhere. And they took him into their ship and they anally probed him and they did all kinds of experiments on him. Didn't they make, uh, just to keep it uh, saucy, didn't they like use instruments and stuff to like jack him off or collect his seed? Uh, yes. And, and again, I, I could be off on this. I'm not an expert. Uh, but I believe this is the book that first kind of introduced these theories into the mainstream that you hear all the time now. About aliens trying to use us to breed. Yeah, anal probing and mm -hmm. collecting semen and sexual experiments. I think all these things were popularized, if not initially introduced into the mainstream by this book. I like the abduction stories when the, the, the guy says that they were presented with like this beautiful Nordic looking alien woman and told that he must have sex with her so that they can make a new angel baby or whatever and let him go. And he just so willingly does it. And I, I always figured it was like his way of explaining away that he paid way too much money for a prostitute in Las Vegas. <laughs> Whitley Strieber, it's hard because he's done like lie detector tests that he would say indicate that he believes what he's saying if nothing else. He passed the test for lack of a better term, right? Yeah. he. I mean, I don't even remember the specific 
evidence, but he points to like three or four things that prove to him being sincere mm-hmm. in his memories being recalled. This is all written from his perspective. This book just really captured my imagination when I first read it and it's just uh, really, really interesting. How old were you when you first read it? Early 20s. I was, believe, 12. Holy shit. So, now we know why. Oh, yeah. Remember in our horror movie episodes where you revealed that you uh, you felt a little stirring in your jam jams when the killer clowns from outer space had inflatable... Boobies. Boobies. Mm-hmm. This is where it all comes from because this, the communion book is very nasty. It is a nasty book. And very saucy, very seductive, provocative. I think you might have some sort of confusing sexual alien thing going on, kind of like George ends up having a sexual attraction to food in Seinfeld because he huh. mixes them too much, mixes food and sex. Also to a, to a feminine version of Jerry. <laughs> well, now, okay, we got to be careful. We're going to go down a Seinfeld rabbit hole. Yep. But yeah, so I think you've mixed aliens and sex so much that now you're attracted to aliens sexually. Exactly. Okay. Communion by Whitley Strieber. It's also been made into a movie that I have not seen. Apparently, this book ruined his career uh, from what I read. His horror career, right? Didn't he write more? I think he wrote more stories about abduction, including other yeah. people's experiences. He, he wrote follow-ups to this and mm. apparently, th- I mean, it's been a while since I've read this but I remember reading that he's broke and he has nothing and despite all that, he still persists in his claims that everything that happened to him is true. True or not, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Should I give another guess or do you want to just sit here in silence some more? On my books? Yeah, I thought you were going to guess. Do you have another graphic novel in there? No. Are they all fiction? Everything left? Yes. Twilight. <laughs> no. Where's Waldo? Have you read Twilight or... I mean... No. Do you re- <laughs> <laughs> have yeah. you read Where's Waldo? <laughs> oh, it's Animorphs. Animorphs. Uh, I have actually never read an Animorphs. Captain Underpants. There's one of these I'm sure you read or have had read to you. If that gives you a clue. Is it a kid's book? There is a children's book on here. Is it Dr. Seuss? No. It is a famous book but not a famous author. I don't believe the author is famous. Hello fucking moon or whatever that called. Good night moon? No, no. It's not a sweet book. In fact- Do you know there's a page in that book? I've, you know, I have kids so I've read that book semi-recently. There's literally two pages in that book. So, like the two pages in front of you when it's open in your hands. Mm-hmm. It's literally a blank, <laughs> it's a blank space and it's the narrator saying, good night, nothing. Yeah. That was an easy day for the illustrator. What the fuck? Why? What do you want me to put on this page? Nothing. <laughs> good night, nothing. Literally nothing. I want you to put nothing on it. <laughs> good night, moon. Good night, you know, kittens, whatever the hell. Good night, that, <laughs> that old lady bunny. Good night, nothing. They should have put (laughs) good night quota demanded by publisher to make an, (laughs) you know, an even number of pages. Good night, nothing. My ass was blown by that. And then there was also like good night porridge or some shit. I'm like, what what kids liking this shit? Cheese, right? Isn't that, doesn't say good night to some cheese? (laughs) I I'd like someone to explain. And that book has endured. Did you just remember it too? I, I'm not positive. I'm pretty sure there's a piece of cheese. I think it's mush. I said porridge, but I think it's yeah, mush. Yeah, it's mush. Good night, mush. <laughs> you, yeah. And we both- somehow this book has survived generations of children. 
Some horseshit is what I say. It is horseshit. Um, no, the book is, I might have mentioned it on here before. It's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. You've definitely mentioned that book. Uh, written in uh, 1972 by Judith Viorst. Julia Bratwurst? Vior- I think it's pronounced Viorst, V-I-O-R-S-T. It's short enough that it does not have page numbers, but I counted them and I think there's 29. Because I don't usually count the couple pages in the front. So, uh, about 29. Have you read this book? Or no, but you spoke about it ad nauseum in our best-selling book franchises episode. The art in it is really good. It's a you know, realistic type of uh, line drawing. But if you're into different types of illustrations in children's books... <laughs> well, yeah. I, I read a lot of children's books and uh, there are some that I despise... Because I, I think the illustrations are shitty and boring and lazy. And there's some that I love because of the artwork. Like Goodnight Moon? Goodnight Moon, uh, the artwork, I guess, is okay. I think my favorite book as far as the story, the words, and the art is a book called... Well, I didn't put it on this list. It's the favorite one in my kids' uh, room. It's called I Want My Hat Back. If you have kids, go look up I Want My Hat Back. Uh, it's worth... The whatever, 10 bucks to get it. Well, what's it about? Is it about getting his hat back? It's a bear, bear trying to get his hat back. Mm-hmm. Well, in Alexander, Alexander, I know I mentioned it before, his kid gets shit on from sun up to sundown. Mm-hmm. And I, the reason uh, this book is on here is that it was one of my first experiences with a book that does not have a happy ending. There is no resolution to the story. There's no even silver lining. At the end of this day where everything that can go wrong for this kid goes wrong, his ice cream falls off the ice cream cone, he's trying to lick it, uh, he shit his pants, he... Okay, he didn't, he didn't shit his pants. <laughs> he didn't shit his pants, but if I was updating this for 2019, he would have shit his pants. Uh, he had a bad day and at the end of the day, it was still bad. When he got in bed, the last thing he did before he went to sleep was he bit his tongue. And his mom said, some days are like that. <laughs> so, what's the lesson here? That? That some days are like that? Well, th- throughout the entire book, he... Is he a whiny ass kid? Is he... He is whining but he is yeah. having a bad day. I, admittedly, you can... It is demonstrably proven throughout the book that he is having a shit day and he is justified in complaining about it but he continuously offers the solution of uh, escaping to Australia that these problems would not exist if he could run away to Australia. And his mom says at the end, some days are like that even in Australia. Well, yeah. Listen up, Alexander. They got huge ass spiders that could eat your car in Australia. (laughs) They have way worse problems for you to to deal with. If you live in Australia, just unsubscribe from our show. Koalas have chlamydia. Did you know that? No. Yeah, all koalas. Isn't that a sex disease? Yeah. They have it. They all have it. They all have it? They all have it. Explain this to me. I, I don't understand. I read it somewhere. Uh, now, no, but- now we're going to stop everything and Google it. I'm going to the Google. Why the heck do so many koalas have chlamydia? Is that like verbatim what the search says? The title of this article by, at, on, on livescience.com. It has a picture of a very cute looking koala that it does have a sinister stare. Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, uh, it first came up in 
sort of pop culture, I guess, through an episode of... Malcolm in the Middle? Last week tonight. Oh. They have a 100% rate of infection, which frequently leads to blindness, severe bladder inflammation, infertility, and death. Treatment with antibiotics could create further problems for the marsupials, upsetting their gut microbes, making it difficult for them to digest the eucalyptus leaves that are a staple of their diet. So, either way... I don't understand. So, like every koala will die eventually from this if they don't die from something else? Yeah. And even the baby koalas get it from uh, eating pap, which is a nutritious type of feces uh, excreted by infected mothers. Thanks, Google. Hold the phone. Wait a minute. The baby eats the mother's shit? It's nutritious. It's, it's uh, what's it called? It was called, um, hold on one moment. Pap. Pap. They eat pap, a nutritious type of feces. But hang on, this, this mother koala can just customize the type of feces that comes out? Yeah. This one's nutritious, this one's not? Haven't you ever been to one of those ice cream machines that has vanilla on one side, chocolate on the other and... In the middle, it basically pulls both levers down to get the swirl, you know, the vanilla and chocolate swirl. Yeah, I, I got it. Yes. That's what koalas can do with their assholes. So, okay. If you take nothing from this podcast, the entire history of this podcast, all 35 episodes, you take to your next dinner party or your next work function that baby koalas voluntarily consume the shit of their mother koala. You know, I always thought koalas were smart. I didn't know they're very stupid and slow too. They eat a nutritious type of feces. They eat feces for nutrition. What's your excuse? Okay, so that's Alexander and the Horrible Day. You're, you just need two more of mine. Yeah, there's not a lot else to talk about because it's a short book. Two of yours uh, and is any, are any of the other ones Stephen King? You said no? They're both Stephen King, so let's just get them both out of the way right now. Wait, I want to guess. Uh, Pet Cemetery. Yeah, Pet Cemetery is number five. This, you know, I told you I was on a rereading kick lately. I read Pet Cemetery the first time in high school, and I reread it this year in preparation for the new movie, which, as we're recording this, I'm seeing that movie tomorrow. So no spoilers. Pet Cemetery, I got to tell you, it really fucked me up on this last read. You know, I, I have kids now since reading it, and. Oh, I was going to say because of Mr. Muffy. Have you not read it? I read it in high school, so it's been uh, 60 years. (laughs) 60 years, yeah. Everyone assumes, I can understand why, that it's a book about a haunted pet. Right. That terrorizes the family. It's actually like a very small sub part of the movie. The movie, or sorry, the book. The book is about, there's a pet cemetery in town where people bury their pets. Soil is sour. Soil's bad and it actually brings pets back to life if you bury it in a certain way in a certain spot. It's about a father who decides to bury his human child in that cemetery to bring him back to life. The problem is they don't come back the same. That's where the famous quote, sometimes dead is better, comes from. So, I mentioned earlier that Stephen King is a lot more than a horror writer and I stand by that. But as far as horror goes, this is definitely a horror book and I will say it's his darkest book. He has said it's his darkest book. He says he regrets publishing it because it's too dark. That could be bullshit, but... That's a great way to sell a book. Stephen King is a genius at many things and one of them is selling books. He's done a lot of interviews about this actually and I have a thing here. He said, 
It's based off a real experience. In 1979, he was living near the University of Maine, and the house he was renting was adjacent to a major road where dogs and cats were often killed by oncoming trucks, which is the setting in Pet Cemetery as well. His uh, daughter's cat was killed by a truck along that road, and his son, his infant son, ran to the road and almost got killed. And that scared him. Holy shit. And he wrote the book about it. I was just, I was going to ask if this, what you said didn't answer it, if he had had children at the time that he wrote it or how old were they? But basically, you just said he wrote, (laughs) it was like autobiographical up until the part where he started like, well, well, what if my son got hit by a car? Let me write about that. And then what if I turn him into a zombie? Let me go down that path too. And the plot sounds kind of stereotypical horror, like, oh, you're bringing someone back to life. But mm-hmm. it's it's a deeply emotional book. And he he's actually said it's the book that has genuinely scared him the most. And I'll tell you, the themes of the book are just overwhelming grief and desperation to change something that's out of your control and being pushed or being uh, drawn to do something you know is wrong and you know can't end well in the back of your mind, but you do it anyway for that little bit of hope that maybe things will be different than you know they will be. And so, those are just really powerful things. And man, when I read this book again this year, it's like, it's just so heavy. Uh, so, yes, yeah, Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, my number five book on this list. Sorry, I was just thinking about <laughs> how awful that is. <laughs> like, just the whole, yeah, the idea and then to go down that, that path in your mind. Yeah, I guess I can see why he's like, maybe I shouldn't have written that. Maybe I shouldn't have done that to my mind. The main character in the book, he knows from what he's been told and from what he's seen because he brings his cat back to life. He knows that it's not a good idea but he can't help himself anyway because it's a father wanting to bring his son back. And so, it's it's like that, that pull, you know this is wrong, you know it can't end well but you have to do it. You know that as a father, you have to try if the option's there. So, it's just... Yeah, it's a, it's a heavy book. If you have kids, it'll hit you especially hard. But just because it's heavy, just because it's dark, just because it's scary doesn't mean it's not good. It's very good. Uh, the other Stephen King book on here I know you've read and that's 112263. Ooh. That is my second choice. I'll just get through it real quick because I'm sure everyone's sick of hearing me uh, hang from Mr. King's balls. There's plenty of room on Stephen King's balls for us all to swing for a little while. Yeah. This is a, not a horror book. It's a, I guess a, historical drama. I don't know. It came out in 2011. It's 849 pages. Goodreads rating of 4.5 stars. It's about a man who figures out how to travel in time to the past and he decides to prevent or attempt to prevent the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. I mean, what do I say about this book? It's uh, incredibly captivating. The cast in the book is uh, very strong. One of King's best main characters, I would say. It draws from real history. You can tell Stephen King did his research. Dude, if you're at all interested in it's this is a, it's a science fiction story. So if you're at yes. all interested in time travel, it's not heavy on the dynamics of time travel. It leaves no, not at all. It's it's actually unexplained. Yes, it's, he just steps in a certain place in this back room, which I love. I don't want yeah. an explanation. I think any kind of explanation is boring and more unbelievable than something that's just a mystery. But if you're interested in the idea of like someone going back and having to think about how do I logically do these things, knowing the future, how do I like get money? How do I 
basically do everything that you would need to do to not get caught being from the future and also go throughout your mission of stalking and stopping Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, it's interesting too because the time travel is just a back story to the whole thing. Yeah. Also, a whole Kennedy ask, uh, assassination aspect. Yeah. I mean, I won't get too in the weeds here except to say the time travel element is not like he picks where he goes. It's a set place in time. So, he actually travels back to like the late 50s, I think 1959 and he has to he wait- He has to wait like three years. Three or four years in that time in order to get to the Kennedy assassination. Anyway, it's super fascinating and another, it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful endings he's ever written as well. Another thing just to take another lunge at Stephen King's balls for a moment. For someone who's interested in like time travel and science fiction and the Kennedy assassination and already like Stephen King, the story between the main character and a love interest was so compelling that at yeah. sometimes I would be a little bit annoyed that I was having to go back in or, or continue reading the Lee Harvey Oswald storyline so I could get back to that other one, which is the not- love story. Yeah, yeah. which is not- is a big compliment to Stephen King from me because that part of a, a movie or a book normally would not hold my attention. Agreed. This book has also been turned into a Hulu series, eleven twenty two sixty three, starring James Franco, produced by J.J. Abrams. Uh, the, the series is good. I'd say it's doesn't. I mean, it's good. I didn't think it was great, but it's good enough. This book won a ton of awards. It's a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, eleven twenty two sixty three, and and Brandon. Yes. Before we get to the rest of your list, we have a couple iTunes reviews to read, if that's all right. I love them. I love these. Every week, we read reviews from iTunes slash Apple Podcasts on this show. If you want us to read your review, then get off your lazy fucking ass and write a review and we'll fucking read it. It's that simple. Whoa. So, we were talking about Australia a few minutes ago. This review comes from a, a, a listener in Australia. Isn't that neat? Someone in Australia is listening to us? Yeah, why not Zoidberg from Australia? That's really cool. Hi. Okay, they say, this podcast is gold, Jerry, gold. I can't remember how I stumbled on this podcast, but let me tell you, I binge listened all 30 episodes while I was stuck in the hospital with, with literally nothing to do. So, I give you this. This podcast is more entertaining than staring at the ceiling for seven days in a drugged haze. Nick and Brandon had me with 10-ish Seinfeld references every episode and lots of talk about hot dogs. It's such a simple formula and I love the ads for other smaller podcasts. It's a great way to give back to the podcast community. That Why not Zoidberg? First, I want to know what you were doing in the hospital. Was it because you were so entranced with- The first episode busted his or her gut. <laughs> or, or busted their mind. The doctors kept getting pissed. or like, stop. You got to get those earbuds out of your ears. It's getting worse and worse. <laughs> so, thank you. Why not Zoidberg? That was very sweet. Thank you. I liked that. That was very nice. Okay. So, now we're going to go to one from... I hope this one shits all over me. Not literally. This is from... This is Pam. She's from the good old USA, God's country, the greatest country on earth, MAGA, make America great again. Oh my God. This is Pam says, so good. I've only listened to one episode, but I'm hooked in all caps. (laughs) I love the dry, sarcastic humor. It speaks to my soul. Smiley face emoji. Great work, guys. And Brandon. What? Did it say that? I lost it. I don't know. It might might have. It might not have. Thanks, Pam. Thanks, everyone, for those reviews. Okay. So, Brandon, we we have two left on yours, right? Yeah. I'm just going to narrow one down. One of these, uh, this book is a classic book. 
Uh, maybe class. It is a book. I'll tell you, this book is a book that has been banned. It's been banned from literature classes, which is where I read it in my, my senior year of high school in AP literature. Pride and Prejudice? No. Uh, it has been removed from school libraries. Frankenstein? No. A judge described the book as depraved, immoral, psychotic, vulgar, and anti-Christian. What year was that? I believe it was in the 70s or 80s that a judge said that, but the book was written in 1969. It is a science fiction-infused anti-war novel about the giver. The, oh, that's no, not that's not anti-war. About the World War II experiences and journeys. Or what's the uh, catch twenty? Catch twenty-two. It's not catch twenty-two. Uh, it's Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. I haven't read that. Uh, have you heard of it? Uh, it sounds familiar. I did not read it in school. Apparently. Well, it might have been banned in your school for okay. being vo- psychotic, vulgar, and anti-Christian. Which I did not exactly take that away from it. Slaughterhouse Five or The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. <laughs> a what dance? A duty, not, <laughs> not a poo-poo dance. Not a eat your mom shit dance? Not a doo-doo dance, a duty, like as in the call of duty. The novel is commonly referred to as Slaughterhouse Five. But within the introduction of the novel, you learn why it is given the subtitle of The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. It is not commonly referred to by that full title. Okay. Have you heard of Kurt Vonnegut? Do I need to cover who, to, I need to explain yeah. to the folks at home who Kurt Vonnegut is? Lead singer for Nirvana, right? <laughs> yeah. Slaughterhouse-Five, it clocks in at 275 pages. As I said, it's a science fiction infused anti-war novel about the World War II experiences and journeys through time of Billy Pilgrim. From his time as an American soldier and a chaplain's assistant to post-war, uh, it, it's a postmodern modern uh, metafictional novel. It's the first postmodern novel I ever read. I never read a book like this before that had an unreliable narrator or a narrator that could and did even insert himself into the story. Uh, a cameo that he says is reportedly true that he did say that, did say those things. And he does also have the funniest line, like a laugh out loud funny line. But the first line of the book is that all of these things happened more or less. So, to immediately introduce the idea that this is an unreliable narrator, an older man who has been drinking and is recalling events and is about to tell you a story about a man who is himself an unreliable narrator. Uh, the story is told in nonlinear fashion. It introduces ideas about the fourth dimension of time and uh, how a fifth dimensional being would experience that, what that means for uh, existence, what existence means looking through the lens of World War II. The novel also features the firebombing of the German city of Dresden. Do you know anything about that? No. Towards the end of the war, America bombed civilians in Germany towards the end of the year and they firebombed this city and killed at least 30,000 people. Just completely destroyed this town and Kurt Vonnegut was there. He was prisoner of war and being held in a slaughterhouse in slaughterhouse number five in Dresden when it was firebombed by the Americans. So, he has a unique perspective on war and... What is it good for? (laughs) That's a good way to sum up this book, war. What is it good for? 
It's a great book. There is a reason that despite being banned from literature classes, it was placed there in the first place and then people fought to put it back there. It's influenced a lot of people. A lot of young people uh, have a Kurt Vonnegut phase. I did too and still do. Uh, I'm trying to look at the rest of my notes here to see if there's anything hot or sexy that I might have missed. Or nasty. There is is sex. (laughs) Uh, There is sex and the mention of like boobs and sex and stuff in the novel. Uh, I think there's a drawing, the author's drawing of an asshole is a famous doodle featured in the novel. It was the first novel I ever read that ever had doodles. Duty, doodles, and assholes. Where you could just be typing a novel and then pick up a sharpie and say like, I'm going to draw a little picture here. And he did. They used to write fucking novels on typewriters, Brandon. I know. And before that, they wrote them on pen and paper. Idiots should have been using computers all along. I just... I don't understand. To contrast the, that judge's description of Slaughterhouse-Five as depraved, immoral, psychotic, vulgar, and anti-Christian, it's also been called by people with taste, <laughs> an example of unmatched moral clarity and one of the most enduring anti-war novels of all time. You're making me want to read this thing, mostly for the asshole doodle. Oh, I have a quote from it. Let me, let me read it. America is the wealthiest nation on earth, but its people are mainly poor and poor Americans are urged to hate themselves. To quote the American humorist Ken Hubbard, it ain't no disgrace to be poor, but it might as well be. It is in fact a crime for an American to be poor, even though America is a nation of poor. Every other nation has folk traditions of men who were poor but extremely wise and virtuous, and therefore more estimable than anyone with power or gold. No such tales are told by the American poor. They mock themselves and glorify their betters. The meanest eating or drinking establishment owned by a man who is himself poor is very likely to have a sign on its wall asking this cruel question. If you're so smart, why ain't you rich? There will also be an American flag no larger than a child's hand glued to a lollipop stick and flying from the cash register. Americans, like human beings everywhere, believe many things that are obviously untrue. Their most destructive untruth is that it is very easy for any American to make money. They will not acknowledge how, in fact, hard money is to come by and, therefore, those who have no money blame and blame and blame themselves. This inward blame has been a treasure for the rich and powerful who have had to do less for their poor publicly and privately than any other ruling class since, say, Napoleonic times. Many novelties have come from America. The most startling of these, and thing without precedent, is a mass of undignified poor. They do not love one another because they do not love themselves. Some heavy shit from the Tralfamadorians. Yeah, I actually was up making a sandwich. Can you start at the top there? You can just rewind me. Yeah, I'm going to actually pick up that book because I never read it and it sounds fucking interesting. Do you want to borrow a copy of mine for a couple years, never read it and then return it? <clears throat> I don't know the context behind that weird joke that uh, I don't understand. Nick has never seen Goodfellas despite <sighs> the fact that I loaned it to him and he kept it for years. Did I return it to you? You did, but now it's it, now it's on like HBO Go or Netflix and you could e- even just as easily watch it. Was good, it, Goodfellas is the one where David Spade and Adam Sandler get into some hilarious hijinks, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. They're both cops. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, I, I should watch that. So, Brandon, for you, I got Slaughterhouse Five, The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. Mm-hmm. I also have 
Alexander and the Torrible Something Something Day. I have The Dark Knight Returns. I have Fear and Loathing. Is your number five Mad Libs? <laughs> no. I'll give you some hints. It okay. was adapted into a film. Came out in the 90s. The film did or the book? The film and the book came out in the 90s. The film was directed by David Fincher. Oh. Oh. What are you doing over there? Are you thinking or are you whacking? I do my best thinking when I'm whacking. I feel like this is going to be so obvious, but I cannot think of it. Fight Club. Fight Club. Jesus Christ. Help. I knew it. It's Fight Club. Uh, it was written in 1996 by Chuck Palahniuk. It is 208 pages long. I think most people are aware of the film Fight Club and the novel is contains only minor differences. However, the novel is told from a first person point of view. The narrator uh, in the film version, this would have been Edward Norton's character, narrates the novel and it's even more of a, a mindfuck because it's told from a first person perspective and therefore has an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, the same themes of emasculation and existentialism and anti-consumerism uh, are all in there too. So many isms in there. A lot of isms. You think you're smart with your big words and your textbooks and your, your you think you're so smart, huh? <laughs> you didn't get beyond, what does a nerd use? Textbook, uh, <laughs> fucking nerd shit. <laughs> so, I first read it at age 18 and it held meaning for me. I read it again at age 21 and it had a slightly different meaning. And then again at age 30, had an entirely new meaning. I don't want to get too into like what those meanings are because it'll be different for everybody, I'm sure. Although I'm, uh, there's, you know, obviously some very big broad themes in the film and in the novel that everyone is aware of. But if you haven't picked it up, um, pick it up. That's my, um, what's, what does he say at the end of reading Rainbow? Well, as he say, like, if you haven't read it, you should do it or something like that. Read a book. It's good for you. He says something positive about reading. I can't remember. Is reading, reading Rainbow that shit we watched in elementary school about books? Take a look. It's in a book. A reading rainbow. Is that the guy that was in Star Trek too? Yeah. Uh, LeVar Burton. Yeah. That, that's the same shit? Yeah. They had that shit back when you were in school? <laughs> yeah, it was LeVar Burton then too. Huh. Yeah. That, oh, he said, uh, they said, don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. So, don't take my word for it. Read all these shits for yourselves. LeVar Burton, hell of a guy. You know, he can see in real life. Is he blind in the... Yeah, data, his... data is blind. That's what that visor is for. <sighs> oh, wait, he's not, his name's not Data. Data's the android. What is LeVar Burton's name in Star Trek? I don't watch Star Trek. I don't know. You just established that you're a nerd. I'm no, I just happen to know that factoid. It doesn't mean I watch Star it. Star Trek, LeVar Burton. You're the one who knew the, the goddamn actor's name. Who in the world? Name one person in the world who could have known his name was LeVar Burton off the top of your head just by me mentioning that. Well, That's incredible. In reading Rainbow. No, I mean, I'm impressed. I'm. I'm I, I am shocked. In reading Rainbow, he says, my name is LeVar Burton. And his, yeah, but you haven't seen that in 20 fucking years, 30 years. I, got a, I have a very good brain. It's, I've told myself a lot of things. Holy shit. Now, listen, his name in Star Trek was Geordi LaForge. 
So, you don't remember that character's name, but you remember the actor's name who's never done anything besides Star Trek and Reading Rainbow. He's How do you done... get the Reading Rainbow gig? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, do you want me to find out right now? I will. No, no, I don't. Oh, he played Kunta Kente in Roots. So, that's why he got Reading Rainbow is because he played the lead in the, one of the most influential TV miniseries and they were like, hey, you know what you should do? Teach kids to read some books. Do you remember the book Holes? That was a Shia LaBeouf movie later. I didn't know there was a book called Holes. I mean, I have a couple books called Holes, but they're not that book. Wow. Uh, well, it's Holes with a Z, the one I got. I don't know if you're making a joke here or if you're- I'm not. You said I had pornographic material and that I was a nasty boy. <laughs> well, you are. So, I'm saying that I had some kind of material called Holes with a Z. I know, but you started to sound so true. You started to sound like you were believing what you're saying that I'm just surprised you'd reveal so much about. I'm being a gonzo journalist. <laughs> I'm, I'm dealing in metafiction right now. Holes with a Z. Uh, speaking of holes with a Z, not really though. Go through your top five real quick. Oh, uh, it was Fight Club, Alexander and the Terrible Horrible No Good Very Bad Day, The Dark Knight Returns, Slaughterhouse Five and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And for me, I got Pet Cemetery by Stephen King, Communion by Whitley Strieber, The Silo Series by Hugh Howey, 112263 by Stephen King and It by Stephen King. You know what? This is my podcast. I can have as much Stephen King entries on here as I want. Mm. I also asked our listeners, our thumb twaddlers out there, what is your favorite book and why? And we got a lot of responses, my friend. Let's hear them. We actually got so many, we're not going to have time to read them all. So, I'm just going to pick out a few here. This one comes from Camille on Facebook. She says, my favorite book ever is The Hobbit. I know it has become a cliche on must-read lists since the Peter Jackson films. However, it was my first exposure with a book that I became utterly lost in the world. Yeah, I know what you mean. That's what yeah. I got for the... That's what I got with... Uh, with holes with a Z? With holes with a Z. That's a world... You got utterly lost in that world? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of different things. Okay. Ivan on Facebook says that he is going to go with The Watchmen. Although it's somewhere between a graphic novel and a true typical book, The Watchmen altered some of my basic influential philosophies when I first read it and still keeps me thinking. I've read it five or six times now. It's a wonderful portrait of the human condition about the questions we all still have in the age of answers. And then this asshole wraps up with hashtag hot dog Nick. Hell yeah. You know, I was already digging it because I also have a copy of Watchmen and I read it every couple years. But then he blew me out of the water with using the correct hashtag. Well, if you want to use the correct hashtag, it's actually hashtag hot dog Brandon. And we actually have hashtag hot dog Brandon shirts in the Tennis merch shop right now. You can go to tpublic.com and search for Tennis, buy a shirt, and walk around with a lie on your shirt. Walk around. <laughs> uh, okay, so here's some more. Th these come from Twitter now. I mentioned uh, the Myth, Legend, and Lore podcast earlier. We aired their promo. Mm -hmm. They uh, replied and said, Saga of the Volsungs. It's got it all. Vikings, Valkyries, Vengeance, Murder, Dragons, Heroes, Norse mythology. I could go on. Yeah. You got my attention with Vikings and Dragons. Not for the Dinner Table podcast at NFTDT says the Black Magician trilogy by Trudy Canavan. We know it's technically three books, but they're so good. I haven't heard of it. But I believe you. <laughs> I don't want to shit on anybody's opinions. Podcast 42 at Podcast 42 show says the Talisman. 
Is that Stephen King? Yeah, it's a Stephen King book. Uh, that's actually one I have not read, one of the few. I haven't either. Did he co-write that one with his wife? There's one that he co-wrote and I, I don't know. He co-wrote one. He's co-written one with his son. He's co-written one with Peter Straub. I think it might be that one his, actually. His wife is Tabitha, right? Yeah. I Tabitha. swear there's one that he co-wrote with her and I yeah, guess I'm probably wrong. Okay. A few more here. At Deep Into History on Twitter mm-hmm. says, The Iliad by Homer. We mentioned that one. Yeah, it was read to me as a child and I never stopped reading it. Well, if you've never stopped reading it, how did you stop to, to tweet this? It's like the song that never ends. Cooking with Grief podcast at Cooking with Grief says, Catch 22. It captures the absurdity of everything, really. Cool. I have not, yeah. like I've had it recommended to me several times. And... Yeah, same here. I've actually never read it. But that's, isn't that one that a lot of people read in school too? Yeah, I just... God bless Mrs. Schmidt for allowing us to read Slaughterhouse-Five, but I guess my other English teachers weren't as hip and I never, I never heard of it when I was in high school. Does the saying Catch-22 come from the book or vice versa? I, I do not know. The Suck My Fanfic podcast. <laughs> we've talked about them before. They're a great podcast. I know. It just makes me laugh. Well, not everything's sexual, Brandon. It could have been a butt. Suck my butt. Why? Well, usually people are saying suck my... Suck my fanfic. Fic rhymes with... Stick. They commented on Catch-22 saying, I see the book as one big puzzle since it's almost existential, especially considering the fact that it isn't in chronological order. Once you have all the pieces and you can see the whole picture, it's beautiful. That's referring to Catch-22. Yeah. That sounds not wholly dissimilar from Slaughterhouse-Five. So, yeah, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go pick it up. The stories of your and yours podcast at SYY Podcast on Twitter, says The Stand and It by Stephen King. Good choices, I guess. I mean, if you like Stephen King, I mean, I guess those are okay. If you like shit. Intensity by Dean Koontz. Ghostman by Roger Hobbs. Champion of the World by Chad Dundas. Jurassic Park and Timeline by Crichton. The Ruins by Scott Smith. I've read some of those. I bet Jurassic Park kicked off a lot of novel reading for young people. The No Context Podcast at No Context The Show. Uh, they said A Clockwork Orange. He had to reread it so many times just to get that it eventually grew on me despite how disgusting it is. Ooh, I've never read the book now that you've said disgusting. It's going up on my list. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of holes in there. A podcast about something at APA something says Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Harry finally finds out he was right about Snape the whole time. Dumbledore dies, complete shift of power by the end, Tom Riddle's backstory, it completely raised the stakes for the final book in every way. And as everyone who listens to this show knows, Rand and I are, are really deep into the Harry Potter universe. We're experts in all these, so I just got to say I agree with everything that they said. Yeah. Is that the book where they stick jelly beans up their ass? <laughs> That's the book where there's a, uh, a Hunger Games, right? Uh, they And they mentioned Ready Player One as a runner-up, which Brandon shit on earlier. So. Well, I said I read it. I read the entire thing and I said it was a really fun read. It was a lot of fun to read, but it's the dialogue is, yeah, man. Uh, we got Suck My Fanfic again saying 1984, saying it's the scariest book they've read. Yeah, fucking living it now. Let's do one or two more here. All right, Nerdtron64. The Hunger Games was my favorite for a long time. I read it in one sitting twice. Now, do you think that means they read the book back to back twice in one sitting or they read it twice in one sitting two different times? You see what I mean? 
I really hope it was just they read it and as soon as they hit the last page, they're like, well, I'm not even bothering getting up and flipped right to the start and did it again. <laughs> just okay. sat in their filth for like two days. I always have respect for people that read books in one sitting. I've never done that. I have only done that with one book. Uh, the book was The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Oh, yeah. Which was made into a film as well. Yeah, I've, I've read that. I didn't even have kids yet and I read The Road and it in one sitting was probably, actually this probably is the way to do it rather than to drag it out over several days because it is some rough shit. I just read too slow to do that. Okay, two more and then we'll we'll close out. The Accidental Pod on Twitter says, Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett is my all-time favorite. I've read this book so many times that the cover is falling off. Never heard of it. I mean, I'm familiar with Neil Gaiman's stuff, but I, I, I'm not familiar with that one. And the last one comes from at Amanda Actually with two Y's on Twitter. Harry Potter, any of them, The Hate You Give, God's Grave, Queen of Shadows, The Help, Crooked Kingdom, and The Daughter of Smoke and Bone Trilogy. I ha also have the Smoke and Bone Trilogy. Uh, it's next to Holes with a Z. Smoke and Bone. How come no one suggested the Fifty Shades of Grey? Do you not series? understand that Smoke and Bone sounds like I had I had moved on. I wasn't even listening to what you're saying, to be honest. God damn it. So go back. Let's do it again. Smoke and bones. Are you what gonna try it? to are you gonna try to save this shit in the edit? <laughs> Just leave it all in. Someone else will think I'm funny. Someone else is probably listening. That's the only thing you have to do right now. Listen well, I I'm trying to produce a show, navigate all these tweets. <laughs> We got so many tweets with books. I want to thank everyone who submitted their favorite books. Thank you. I have not heard of some of these. Some I have, some I've read, some I haven't. But I am going to look up all these that I have not heard of because I'm always looking for more books. So, we appreciate it. And if you want to contribute to topics like this on future episodes, just follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 10ishpod. This was fun. I like stepping away from our normal format every once in a while. You like flaunting your opinions. I like flaunting my opinions. I like smoke and bones. That was such a funny joke you said earlier. I mean... The... <laughs> high five. All right. Yeah, high five. It was great. I mean, I really got the, the subcontext there. How about that holes with the Z too, right? All right. Holes with the Z was... That was great. That was so good. <laughs> oh, that was so good. Another high five? Uh, no, that's enough. All right. We'll be back next week with a traditional... Tennis podcast top 10 list. Brandon, you're going to have list duty next week. Traditionally untraditional. Non-traditional. Right. Is it non? Non-traditional. All right. Anything else you want to say to our loyal listeners? Thank you. Read more. Uh, reading is like a rainbow. Shit like that. Read more. Watch porn less. Well. Read more porn. Just read your porn. Yeah. Put your porn in reading format and then you're killing two birds with one stone. All right, let's just end this thing. Mercifully. Goodbye. Bye.